Welcome to Mum's Dad's Work. I'm Ben Falk from WorkingDads.co.uk. I'm here with Mandy Garner. Hello, Mandy. Hi, Ben. I'm here from WorkingMums.co.uk. Yes, we, we basically work together. And yeah, apologies for my voice is a little throaty. The lurgy has come around. So I'm... A terrible I'm, bug that everybody yes. I speak to seems to have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's that. And then uh, combined with... Uh, it will be interesting. I don't know whether you can hear the guinea pig, my guinea pigs in the background. You can you you can see see the cage yeah, yeah. the, the <laughs> audience the audience won't be able to see this thankfully i had i called them my team my, yeah. my work team i consulted them on all exactly. things I'm hot desking. I'm hot desking with Tiffany and Phoebe, our guinea pigs. Anyway, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. We're really excited. We're going to have. Uh, we did an interview with Karen Holden. Who's Who's Karen Holden for our for our listeners, Mandy? Karen is the founder of a city law, law firm. She's a lawyer, and she has a regular column with um, Working Mums uh, every month, and is great. She does all sorts of things as well for for women who found their own businesses to actually give them more advice and support. Yeah, so brilliant. Well, that's going to come up shortly. We we interviewed her and chatted all about loads of really, really helpful, useful, practical advice. But first, we 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 were just going to touch on. Well, it's it's been quite an interesting week, hasn't it, Mandy? In terms of the four day week, because for us on the site, the four day week is is sort of potentially a utopian ideal, or maybe it's <laughs> but it's coming for a bit of a backlash this week, and it's that's frustrated us. I think is that fair? Yes, that is fair. I mean, it's been going on for a while, the backlash, but it's it's a backlash particularly against the local authority that was doing a pilot of the four-day week. And the government sort of stepped in and basically said, you can't do it. It, it won't work. It's not, you won't be able to cover all the demands from your people ringing into the, you know, people who need council support. And it sort of flies in the face of the fact of the pilot and waiting for the evidence. And so <laughs> uh, the reason that the council has got involved in the four day week and why lots of people get involved in the four day week is that they're looking for ways to address some of the concerns of staff about burnout and all that kind of thing. And they're also addressing things like staff shortages and trying to attract more people into uh, places like local authorities. So it seems a bit ideologically motivated, really, to step in before no. you've actually got the evidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, evidence it... there is on the four-day week seems to be mostly quite uh, favourable, and that you know people can do the four-day week, and and it's uh, you know you, you need to sort of look into the detail of it all, but you can do it and sort of maintain the service and even in some cases increase productivity so that's what the evidence is saying and of course in you know different organizations have different experiences of it but it is interesting and it is good I think that employers are willing to experiment and look at different ways of working you know because we know that staff work-life balance and all that kind of stuff is so important to people and that people are working more intensively these days and and need breaks more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting. I, you know, I still think we're at that weird. We're not quite at that paradigm shift. I mean, we should have been like COVID should have been that the the kind mm -hmm. of catalyst for that paradigm shift. But there was that brief kind of leaning over towards that, and then that seems to have started to sl to slope away. But I mean, I, 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 so I'm not sure. I think it might be a, a generational thing. I think when you know Gen Z, Gen Gen A start to become those people in power which they're obviously not yet because they're just sort of getting into the workplace that that paradigm shift might might change in terms of attitude and stuff but it it is interesting that there has been 
Yeah, a lot of really, po- I mean, you know, there's going to be positive and negatives about it. There, there's, there's no perfect way of working, right? I mean, just mm, exactly. But um, it, it seems strange that the government has stepped in in this scenario. I mean, and it seems to be based around value for money. And I, I don't know whether it's this kind of idea that somehow these are public sector workers and therefore they are not, you know, working as much as, quote unquote, everybody else, which, which seems kind of peculiar. I, I don't, you know, I, but, uh, you know, I, I can understand in a way why they've done it, you know, or they need to show that public sector workers are are providing value. But it does seem slightly ideologically motivated. I mean, we don't know that for sure, but but it has that. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's based on a on a FOI Freedom of Information request by the Taxpayers Allowance uh, Alliance, sorry, um, which you know they're talking about accountability and everything, and yet that's an organisation that isn't really we don't really know very much about who's involved with it and where. What, it's not very accountable, and I don't think it basically speaks for a lot of taxpayers. <laughs> well, no, and it, and it's quite interesting. I, I was looking. I was obviously follow. I wrote a story on on the website about it, and I was following it up on on social, and it was kind of intriguing. It was funny, like they were saying that uh, the government obviously doesn't, the parliament doesn't sit for the whole year, and has you know huge swathes of time when when it's when it's off we know that a lot of mps on all sides on every you know in every party have second third fourth fifth jobs and i'm i'm sure that very few council workers are earning the same wage as what as mps so you know obviously there are some but there are there are few, there are not that many of them so it's kind of fascinating that this value for money has been touted when there are so many people sort of seemingly flouting that or at least not abiding by what, what I don't know how you constitute what value for money means, particularly because it's like, well, yeah, is it days off for sick? Is it mental? You know, like how, how do you quantify what, what constitutes value for money? But it's disappointing. Overarching, it's disappointing, it's- but it, it is it is part of a of an, an ongoing sort of backlash against any forms of alternative to the five days in the week uh, office thing. Because there, there was another story out recently in the last few days, which was in the Daily Mail about mumployees. I mean, that was the, the headline, mumployees. <laughs> and uh, mumployees who are shirking, basically shirking from home because, you know, they've all got their kids there, apparently. And the reasons for why they might have their kids there is not sort of looked into. There's no real context there and or what what that actually means but you know the issues of childcare and the expense of childcare I mean, they, they did mention it in passing but the impression that it gives is that you know all these people who are working from home are basically just spending the whole time doing the washing and they had graphs in the story about how many people are doing the washing and the cooking and doing <laughs> online shopping you know all that kind of stuff that apparently you never do online shopping when you're in the office never, uh, <laughs> never. i've never, never done anything but work when i'm in the office ever <laughs> I just and it's it's almost every day I mean when you when you look at it every every other day at least there is a story that is against hybrid or remote working and I got uh, in my other job I got around an email the other day that was um, a a poll that is going to under 35s don't know why it's going to under 35s only but it was a sort of headline something like you know, have has has hybrid and and um, remote working failed? Some, something to that effect. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, it's slanted, 
it's, and, that's the thing i think this idea that it's a zero-sum game is mm-hmm. it, it does it has all that element to it right this idea that there's it's there's no nuance there's obviously there's no. and minuses to being the office we know like yes i think even those of us who are pro flexible working know this but there's, yeah. there doesn't seem to there seems to be that kind of thing coming across of like that lack of nuance that seems to be affecting our daily lives is also affecting our, our working lives and it's it's frustrating but, you know, maybe the backlash will come around. Maybe it'll be like, you know, the kids are into uh, Y2K fashion, you know, so maybe it'll be like that. They'll, they'll be into that. This is the, you know, they'll be into something, then it'll go backlash, be out of fashion. And then maybe in five years time, it'll be back in fashion. Who who knows? Yes. It's just very, you know, the drumbeat is all one way at the moment, it feels like. Yeah. And, you know, there's no positive or there's fewer positive stories definitely about remote and hybrid working even though the demand for them is still very high among workers so it's just like who is driving this why is this there this backlash and and as as you say there's there's pluses and minuses to every form of working there's lots of plus there's lots of negatives about working in the office (laughs) I could think of an awful lot of them in Uh terms of things like office politics and bullying and all of that kind of not to say that bullying doesn't happen online but um happens a lot in the office and and all those all those kind of things and and just there's so many reasons why flexible and hybrid working is a good thing I mean we've seen it this week with you know weather conditions we've seen it over so many different sort of things older workers which see where they seem to be quite happy to have um, more remote working for, if, if it gets older workers off sickness yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Payments. well so, we'll be interested to, to if you have any ideas about this out there then please do drop us a line comment on on the websites and stuff we'd, we'd love to hear your your thoughts on that respond to uh you know uh, talk to the uh, talk to us of the podcast here and and we'd love to hear what you think but we did speak to someone who i think could be incredibly helpful to a lot of 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 uh, listeners mandy T- tell us about who our guest is today so yeah i think we mentioned it earlier so it's karen holden she is the founder of a city law firm it's a london-based law firm they do lots of really great work and uh, she does as I said a regular column for working mums so she answers all sorts of questions about employment rights. Excellent well hopefully you'll get a lot out of this we did, certainly did and uh, we'll be back with you after this. Hello and welcome Karen to Mums Dads Work podcast it's really nice to have you on and we wanted to ask you and pick your pick your brains about everything to do with the <laughs> legal process so I wanted to start basically by asking you what are the kind of main subjects that come up what are the main topics that come up for you in terms of people that are getting in touch with you um, perfect, Mandy. I mean, thank you for inviting me along. I mean, I think everybody knows that since COVID-19, it's about flexible working and hybrid working, which is something everyone's discussing. However, I think more popular at the moment is mental illness and well-being. So we're seeing more and more employers looking at the well-being of their employees in the workplace, whether it's changing policies, whether it's additional training, whether it's their office culture. Um, So we're being asked a lot more by employers how they change their policies, what more they could do to look after their staff. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if anything goes wrong, what's the fair process, advising them. And we're also having a number of employees contacting us to understand when mental illness qualifies as a sort of a disability. When are they being discriminated in? And we're kind of advising on that. We're seeing a lot more of that at the moment. 
And what do you actually say on that? Because on the on the disability front, because we get asked quite a lot about that as well. I mean, it's obviously very difficult because some disabilities are obvious and a medical report will actually indicate exactly when it's a what's called a protected characteristic under the Disability Act. Mental illness is going to be very difficult because it's constantly evolving. Everybody's different. It impacts people in different ways. So I think legally we do sort of have to follow the medical lead. So, we, you know, we would say go and speak to your doctor, obviously, for your own well-being anyway. But they can then say what reasonable adjustments might be needed. They can then say how the employer should be reacting and acting. And then we can then behind that encourage the employer to take these actions. So from that point of view, it depends how proactive the employer is whether they're reacting to an employee's issue or whether they're actually coming to us early on about all of their employers. And it's taking advice and it's going to be difficult because this isn't something where, you know, someone's in a wheelchair. This is something that evolves from every individual and it's not just simply a matter of accessibility. So it's going to be a very difficult period, I think, for employers to adjust. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's become more and more, I mean, it was obviously it was it was an issue before COVID as well to an extent, but COVID has sort of exacerbated it. What about things like trends, like, you know, we're seeing a lot more people coming to us saying that they've been made redundant recently. Is that something that you're seeing a sort of rise in, you know, concerns about dismissal, fair, unfair dismissal? I must admit, in honesty, I expected far more because of Brexit, COVID, the startup loans, the bounce back loans. I really did think as the interest rates started going up previously when the bounce back loans were in place, I did think there'd be a lot more redundancies. And I think maybe many businesses have been quite resilient and quite proactive in restructuring themselves and refinancing. But with the interest rates continuing to go up with all the things that are going on at the moment, I guess I'm anticipating that again. So would I say it's out of the ordinary what we're seeing? No, surprisingly, it hasn't lifted off as much as expected. We're seeing larger organisations, and I won't name them, but we're seeing more and more starting to hit the press. So I guess I'm anticipating more coming in the next few months, but it's very difficult to know because I really did think there'd be a lot more. And I know we're talking about employment, but even from the flip side in business, insolvency is still very low. So... You know, these businesses that we thought would be struggling, obviously some have fallen by the wayside, which is really sad, but more have been resilient than we thought. I, I mean, I'm glad to hear that. Obviously, that's, that's good news for, for the UK. I, I suppose one of the things that I get a lot of questions about is flexible working and and particularly, I suppose, what that means in the sense that it, it's a really it's a very, very broad church. So could you just... I, this is, you know, again, a question that I get a lot of. So, so you know, what are the different kinds of ways that that employee uh, employees can ask about flexible working? And, and, you know, how can that, how does that like actually, we use the term a lot, but how does yeah. that actually exist in the real world? Interestingly, as a law firm that's been going for 16 years, we always had remote hybrid flexible working before COVID-19. So we adapted really quickly. So we were asked by a lot of business and employers, what does it mean? How do we do it? And it's interesting how it's evolved very, very quickly and suddenly become the norm because previously it was considered a taboo subject. So for me, having gone through this for quite a period of time, it can be anything from part-time working to consolidated hours to job sharing to right now to three days in the office, two days at home. 
to being allowed and permitted to work from overseas, which was never really allowed and permitted by many employers before, which brings a number of legal issues. But, you know, it can be flexible working used to be your hours. That was the first terminology it was really created for. So you had core hours to work. And in between that, you could come in and around those hours. Then we started in consolidated hours where you could work longer days, but then shorter weeks. So you do sort of 16 hour days and work less. Then we saw people doing shared roles, part-time roles, particularly for parents. And now it's become a common theme that you do so many hours in the office, so many hours at home. It used to be very clear that you would make a business case to the employer. The employer did not have to accept it. They could say, no, you have to come in. The business needs you. Things are changing now where you can ask for that to be considered more than one occasion. And it's now frowned upon if an employer doesn't give a genuine consideration to a business plan that's put forward. And I think it's an employee's market. So if you're going to deny hybrid working, remote working, flexible working, your employees aren't going to be encouraged to stay because there's so many employers that are offering that. So I think as opposed to where the law stands and what you can and can't do, the employers are still within their rights to say, no, the business needs you five days a week, nine to five. But I think with the marketplace the way it is, you're going to have to be thinking laterally, how can I offer hybrid working? How can I offer remote working? Because otherwise you don't retain your staff. And it's that that seems to be leading it at the moment. Um, so you cannot sue your employer for forcing you to come into the office because that's what your contract will potentially have said originally. That's what your role is. So it's more now negotiations and understanding the marketplace. Do you think the the flexible working legislation, which is obviously changing over the next year or so, um, with the potential for day one right to uh, ask for request flexible working, always make the emphasis on the request because it's not sometimes people assume that they have the right to flexible working. Do you think that that is strong enough, or and if, if an employer is a, is against is dead set against flexible working, there's so many clauses in the law where they can just say, you know business need and all that kind of stuff do you, when you see any cases being brought do you see them being brought just for flexible working or are other sort of issues legal issues involved as well I mean what everybody has to understand there's no legal right for an employer to have to change your contractual terms and if you have agreed to work five days a week in the office it's at their discretion whether they vary that and even if you put a really good business proposal forward they're not legally obliged to change anything. That's why I said more the marketplace and retaining employees is leading it as opposed to contractual terms. However, what an employer and employee have to bear in mind is you can't offer it for one person and not another. You can't say, well, working mums can have it, but working dads can't. You can't say that young people have to do this, whereas the older, more mature people have to do that. So whatever decisions are made they have to be careful that there's no bias there's no unfair treatment and there's no discrimination so employers have to be very careful that their policies are basically for everybody that their processes for everybody and that they document and follow a fair process and i think providing they do that the employers at the moment are still clear that they have to put their business needs first it is evolving, though, so you've got to be very careful um, if a woman is pregnant. You know, can you offer her more flexibility because of a condition? 
or actually you're discriminating against people that are not pregnant. So I think it's got to be handled very carefully by employers on a case-by-case basis. If there is no justification for denying them flexible work and they're going to have to be very careful that they've documented that carefully. I just think it's 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 interesting at the moment because last year flexible working was required by everybody. And now you see in America, they're leading demanding staff to return back to their offices and the banks. So I, th- I think the marketplace will change and I think it'll, it'll somehow hopefully stabilise. But will the law make a difference? Maybe it'll give employees more confidence to put propositions forward and ask, but I don't think in practical terms the law's going to change much. It's still employer and employee negotiations. It's going to be interesting that, isn't it? Because a lot of people, as you say, have over the past two years have experienced this kind of difference and that there's been everyone's had to have had to do it. Um, you know, there are people that have got pregnant during that time or become parents during that time and expect uh or have expected a certain kind of of way of working. When you have someone um, who comes to you who they feel are, are facing uh, discrimination on kind of on the grounds of parentalness, uh, pregnancy, maternity, uh, shared parental leave for working dads, what 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 do you suggest people do kind of in that first instance? I mean, obviously. From a lawyer point of view, we come in a little bit later, but ideally what they should be doing is speaking to their line manager, their HR, trying to express their concerns, explain how it's making them feel, explain what they would like and see if there's an amicable way of them and their employer coming to a good compromise about how it works. If that doesn't work, they should start documenting and taking notes what's going on around them, what people are saying. And at the stage that we usually then get involved is to advise them to potentially issue a written grievance detailing why they feel they're being discriminated against or what reasonable adjustments they need and then the employer is obliged to obviously investigate interview review and come back with written reasons and at that point we then become either the negotiator or we try to help them navigate the process and if unfortunately it doesn't work then they would resign, but it would be called constructive dismissal, where they're being forced to resign because of discrimination, then there's a potential claim there. So I think people need to take advice very early on to see if they can build a bridge and reach a compromise. And if not, we would then look to assist them. The law is there to protect against discrimination. It's evidencing it. Obviously, we've got the new Protection from Redundancy Pregnancy and Family Leave Act coming out well out this year so it's given more enhanced rights so whilst discrimination has always been a legal protection there's been ambiguity as to whether that's just when you're pregnant when you're on maternity not on maternity when you've had the baby and had maternity what about when you come back to work so I think they're trying to give a lot more transparency as it's everything whether you're on surrogacy or adoption leave whether you're a father or a mother whether you're on maternity not on maternity or after I think they're trying to bring it all in together you can't be passed over for promotion. You can't have a reduced salary where your counterparts are going up. And I think that's very important because it's not just about the period you're carrying the baby. There's so much more going on. And we've had miscarriage. We've had um, all sorts of different legislations being reviewed. I think even if it's not as black and white as it could be, I think employers now are paying more attention of their responsibilities. And I think that's been a really good move. 
Yes, a lot of the different changes that have come in are kind of private member bills, aren't they? Things like uh, neonatal care and carers leave, um, uh, the the day one, the flexible working one. You, you mentioned there that they're trying to bring everything together. And you mentioned the maternity one, which is extending protections for women when they come back from maternity leave. Are you seeing more men coming to you worried about discrimination? Because that was one of the sort of key issues, I think, with shared parental leave, that, that men fear that they're going to be in the same position as women <laughs> have been for many years. It's it's an interesting one because years ago, men would never even dare to ask their employer to pick up their children because it's just frowned upon. It's not something you do in the industry. You'd be passed over promotion. And even if the law is there to protect them or there's enhanced rights, they won't take them because of that. I do see a shift since COVID-19 that fathers are working from home and doing more with their children. And I think it's now, again, evolved a bit in our culture that it's now acceptable for a man to do the, the, the school run, the pickup run, take share and leave. Whether in the larger institutes they feel comfortable asking their employer for that time or even noting any discrimination, I think only time will tell. I have had a few cases where, quite frankly, the employer doesn't really understand the process and policies clearly, that they can't really get their head around it. I've also had where there's been discrimination by colleagues laughing and joking that the man's taking the leave when their wife should be doing it and are they a real man? And I've come across that. And I, I think it's just because we've not really evolved quick enough in the family sense in the UK of men being involved. So I do think it will change for the better. But I do think we've probably got a bit of way to go. Mm. That, that's interesting that, you, that you're still seeing that. It's kind of terrifying and sad, really, that, that stuff still kind of happens. I, I mean, for for you, are, are you are you you kind of talk about all these yeah these new rules and new laws and um, that kind of thing? Are you do you feel like the UK is lagging behind? Um, do you feel like how, how are we way behind other you know European countries, uh, other places around the world in terms of how we deal sort of legally with this stuff? I think speaking as an employer business owner and a working mom. The law is the least of our problems. And I think the UK does have good law. I think the UK does care legislation-wise. What we don't yet have is a family culture. So, you know, if you're in Spain, the children come out at certain times of night and they're expected to be with you. They don't work the hours we do. If you look at the Nordic countries, they have extensive rights and um, contractual payments to take leave. I just think we're still very much workaholics. We work very hard and we expect people to work, which is a good thing for the economy. And I mean, I'm a hard worker. I live in London. I want to do that. But at the same time, shared parental leave, taking time off your children. I just don't think culturally we are the same as Europe. So, yes, I think the UK law is trying to keep up. Yes, I think the UK law cares and is offering really good rights. Culturally, whether we take them is another story. And it's also cost. Going to a tribunal, it costs money. So you can take advice, we can work through things, you can do what you can. But ultimately, the law is only really there if A, you can afford it, and B, you're brave enough to utilise it. And that's really sad. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, finally, Karen, I just wanted to ask you about employment tribunals generally. I mean, we've seen a lot, um, and I've written quite a lot about backlogs of employment tribunals. What is the situation at the moment? How long is it taking to you know I guess I guess the the ideal is to get you know to get a settlement before it gets to tribunal 
I mean, the good and bad is that the longer time it takes, like you say, hopefully the employer-employee realise it's going to take time and actually come to a conclusion together without the stress, disruption and costs of a tribunal. However, I mean, it has improved since the COVID blocks, but it, we're still seeing listings of 12 months, 18 months time. And the problem is the employee has to go and get another job to simply survive, pay the mortgage. So by the time the hearing comes past, they've got another job. So that reduces their future loss and damages substantially. The employees had business disruption and had this hanging over them for a while. Things change over the year or two. So it's not ideal. We did introduce where people had to pay for an employment tribunal. We saw that shoot down. They then got rid of that because they wanted it to be more accessible for employees. It's gone up high again. I, I find it difficult, really, because I do think because there's no costs awarded usually against either party, the employee has nothing to lose to issue a claim. It's the employer that has to pay the money, potentially whether they're good, bad, ugly, win or not. Um, whereas a civil court, you you have to pay, you have to do solid evidence to avoid costs against you. So it's accessible to employees. It takes a very, very long time. It's or an awful, painful situation for both. And if they can't reach um, an agreement, ultimately both lose because they've had to pay money and you never get the cost back. So I think that is where we have to probably put more focus on in getting a better tribunal system. Karen, th this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, thank you so much uh, for for the time. I, I wonder. I I kind of always intrigued, like whether someone like you has it deals with a bit like a doctor when people goes, "Hey, um, at the school gates, like, oh, do you, you know, can I just answer your question about something? I'd like to look at my mole." <laughs> we do get that. I mean, like the working parents do speak to me a lot, and I get the odd emails, and it's really difficult because. I am an employer running a business, but I'm also a working mum, so I sit from both sides. So we offer a lot of flexibility to our staff, but at the same time, I've got a business to run. I find it very difficult for both sides at the moment. So you've just got to be very transparent and clear about everything as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed. And um, yeah, uh, I, this has been incredibly helpful, I'm sure, for everyone listening uh, about some of the nuances and stuff. So thank you. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. No, lovely. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Karen. Great to hear there from Karen. Some really useful advice on employment rights, uh, something that we get lots of questions in about, um, probably the most thing that we get most questions in about. Um, but one of the second most things that we get questions about is childcare, uh, which is uh, obviously a, a huge issue and we've spoken about it many times on the podcast. But this week, there was, well, not this week, I think it was last week, there was a big announcement on wraparound care allocations. So more money going into wraparound care, which was welcomed by certainly the Out of School Alliance, who I'd spoken to earlier, who were quite have been quite worried about the state of wraparound care. That's breakfast clubs and after school clubs and all that kind of thing. So they have been worried about sort of funding and also leases and stuff going up, schools putting up the money that they charge for the, using their rooms and things like that, which has often gone up by quite a, lot, a large percentage. And some of them were were basically, as what they were saying, were operating on a on a loss basis, but were just really, you know, really keen to give that, you knew how important um, after school and, and breakfast club support is for parents. So yes, that, that was the that was a big announcement. It was. We... It was interesting. I think what's interesting for me, you know, as a parent with two young, young younger kids, 
you know in the primary system and and is is how sort of brittle and fragile that that world is i mean i i, I live in a comparatively sort of affluent area but i'm not i'm not in london i'm out in buckinghamshire but you know sort of the, the things that kind of i don't know it feels you know though i'm there was a place that used to run a a, a did something near me and then the local university which had a, a kind of early you know early childhood degree they shut that degree down and therefore they had no people coming in and work, wanting to work for them and therefore they had to shut down the shut down that particular branch of, of child care and we know that you know they're potentially reducing how much schools are going to um schools are going to get for each child and stuff like that moving forward and be interesting whether some of the smaller places will that you know whether where they've used a little bit of that money to to create some sort of wraparound care school-based wraparound care whether that will then mean that they can't do that because they're already operating at such tight margins i i think that's what's always been fascinating to me that it, it seems like it's a huge very busy very popular very a lucrative business but actually that that it's not it's running really on a very tight on a tension really yeah absolutely i think that's absolutely the case there's a, there's a staffing the staffing issue there's a staffing issue a crisis across childcare and there's the yes yeah, there's the sort of the schools issue of but the, the money <laughs> and that's where you're seeing that some of the out of schools organizations are facing all these steep increases in prices for sort of renting rooms or you know using the rooms and stuff in schools and so there's availability issues and you know for example I live in a you know my children are older now but I live in a sort of country or village of a small village and the after school provision is basically based on ages it's like a netball club or whatever it is but it's only for a certain age of child which is not that helpful if you have other children because you, it ends up with you instead of like having a bit extra and that you can work for a bit longer in one day you've got to go to the school twice to do the pickup <laughs> it's, it's double um so so it's very age specific the, the the different things and and um interest specific so yeah I think it's a huge issue and, and the out school alliance has also brought up the issue of affordability for parents which is is a massive thing so yeah. it has to be affordable for parents as well and there is there is help through for Ofsted registered childcare through um universal credit and tax-free childcare, but but it's still quite steep for a lot of people this is where we plaintively look at scandinavia and and all wish that we could move there um, <laughs> yes. not scandinavia country you know what i mean in in that the, the region is particularly good on, on this but you know yes. we'll continue to write a lot of stuff about this on on the sites and you know as as we said earlier we're always keen to hear from people who are going through things or have examples of stuff that we can flag up and and highlight on either this podcast or or on the site so please do get in touch if you like this podcast then please do like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast it's really helpful for us if you can do that we hope you enjoyed it this week we should be back in a couple of weeks yep and uh, in the meantime any uh any anything else going on mandy you sort of well, um, at the moment, I'm building up the, uh, the other website, Working Wise, that we have for National Older Workers Week. Um, but we're also leading up to it with the deadline is passed for the Top Employer Awards, our Top Employer Awards. So I'm yeah. looking through those. Yeah, we're very excited about those. And we're, we'll aim to talk about uh, more about those in the next month or so. But in the meantime, thank you very much for joining us. And please do keep on listening. We'd love to hear from you too. Mum's Dad's Work. And we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.